Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the award-winning Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by political reporters Justin Bowie, Rachel Amory and Derek Healy as we sift our way through another busy week in and around Holyrood and Westminster. The SNP leadership continues to throw up surprises, not least a reluctantly extracted admission about membership figures. The three candidates have been slogging out on the road and in front of the cameras. We spoke to all three too for a special series of our own. Any policies that might affect you, we shall see. There was also the small matter of a UK spring budget. Did the Chancellor have any surprises up his sleeve? And we will look at some of our biggest stories of the week across the communities that we call home. Let's start at the beginning then. I think one of the more intriguing behind the scenes sorts of stories is the weird saga of the secretive SNP membership numbers. Derek, can you explain what's behind this? Yeah, it's been it's been totally bizarre, really, hasn't it? Um, so this has been growing, I think, over the last, last little while. Questions about how many members the SNP has, how many people are going to be voting. Um, this was a question that I know that a number of journalists had asked repeatedly, please tell us these numbers. I've been sort of rebuffed or told, you know, maybe they'll come later on or you just couldn't get a clear answer on this question. And then things stepped up a gear because you started to see um, SNP members, sometimes elected politicians, um, starting to ask this question as well. Um, so, for example, you had five councillor Alicia Hayes, who said on, on social media that a concerning number of people, including herself, had not received ballots. Um, and it's not unreasonable for candidates to know how many people are actually going to be voting in this leadership election. It's also probably quite important for the wider public to get an idea. I mean, we saw with other parties, with the Conservatives, um, how many people voted there. There was criticism of that. Um, this, this small group were elected in the next Prime Minister. So just in terms of transparency, it's probably important as well. But then we saw um, all three candidates come out and say, we need to know how many members there are. It's important for the integrity of this leadership race mm-hmm. to know exactly how many people are going to be voting. Now, there's a there's a big embarrassment here as well for the SNP because not that long ago, um, there was a story written by one of our um, by another newspaper talking about how the SNP had lost thirty thousand members. Uh, the SNP came out quite strongly in reaction to that story and said, "Absolutely not! No way! Uh, this is made up." We, we may have lost 300 members, but then we gained more than that. So this is, it's just not true. They've commented on it, you know, quite strongly, quite publicly, that this was not the case. And then finally, the party HQ agreed to publish these figures yesterday. And wouldn't you know it, they have lost 30,000 members. Uh, exactly well, what they well. said was not the case. Yeah, so it's been a pretty big embarrassment, I think, for them. But quite interestingly, actually, the response we've seen to it, so Kate Forbes seized on that straight away and said this shows that continuity is not the way forward we need to change things and and win back members uh, which is obviously a a veiled kind of attack on Hamza Yousaf who has been portrayed by some as the continuity candidate although he rejected that suggestion when he was on our podcast last week yeah it's just strange political parties have a real habit of these pointlessly engineered own goals Mm. I mean Normal folk would just think, oh, I wonder how many members there are in the SNP. I suppose they are the biggest party. They're in government. Um, I'll probably just ask and find out. It must be on the internet somewhere. But it isn't. It's like this closely guarded secret. Until, of course, they went through the roof 
after 2014, when there was this huge groundswell in favour of the SNP, which we saw in majority votes and huge wins at um, Westminster and in Holyrood. It was the the Nicholas Sturgeon high watermark, maybe, wow. over 100,000. And then they put the figures out then, but then it just went quiet. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's bizarre. and you, You've got to look at the whole thing in context. So I think um, when Alex Salmond resigned, these are rough figures, so I'll, I'll be slightly off in these. But I think we're talking about 24, 25,000 when Alex Salmond finished as First Minister. And then after independence um, and, and the period following that and then going to Brexit, I think they hit about 125, 124, 125, something like that. Huge, huge, huge numbers. They're now at around, so the, the last numbers, when we're talking about a 30,000 drop, the last numbers we saw were around 100,000 and now it's down to, I think it's about 73,000 or something. Yeah. So in context, these are still huge numbers. I mean, these are big, big numbers of, of party members. But because of all the noise that's been created around it, it becomes now an embarrassment and a weird thing. Rather than just say, this is our, this is our membership. Um, I think I saw, I saw some kind of people involved in, in polling who said, actually, it'd be a good thing if parties published every year how many members they have. It would probably be quite an important mm-hmm. thing in terms of transparency for their accounts and, and how all that works as well. So yeah, it's just it's a strange, as you say, an own goal that's been created here for really no reason. And one of the words that was used to do it, to sort of try and make the story go away when it was out a few weeks ago was was it was just drivel mm-hmm. as well. So it's just so bizarre to see them, you know, confirm the number basically. And it all there was an interesting podcast that we had a few weeks back, which was about that kind of overlap between um, conspiracy theories and politics. Trumpism, populism, Brexit, independence, referendums, that kind of thing, and how it might become a feature. And there has been some conspiratorial chat around the fringes of this about vote rigging. And of course, the chief executive of the SNP is Peter Murrell, who's Nicola Sturgeon's husband. And there are there are plenty of people out there who are quite willing to sort of push away at that kind of, well, how do we know what's going on in the background? How, how can we trust this process? I mean, it sounds like it, it veers into pretty far out tinfoil hat stuff at times but are you surprised that there's any sort of questions over it when they're so secretive about things as basic as membership numbers but, but i think that's how it begins like i think if you are secretive about fairly innocuous th- innocuous things like membership numbers that that's how you get into this sort of weird trumpism bizarre kind of theories yeah i mean I, 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 as far as we know there's no evidence whatsoever to suggest that there's any kind of vote rigging or anything going on no. Um, but I think people just, I think that kind of vacuum creates questions, doesn't it? And people start to wonder what's actually happening with all this stuff. Um, mm. I, I saw a number of SNP politicians say they were quite concerned that, that those kind of questions were being raised, that it undermines the election, but also it makes them look not great as a party to have some of this conversation going on around the leadership mm. election. I mean, I don't think you had that with the Conservatives. I don't think anyone was suggesting that the votes were being rigged or anything. And... I mean, look, I suspect that it's, that it's not been, and it's not going to be, you know. Um, but I think that's why it's important to be transparent. Um, the other thing I would just say is, it is a bit of a victory for journalism and good journalists, because, you know, that was a story that was written, and, um, you know, I'm quite sure that a lot of people would have been contacting that journalist involved and, um, you know, saying very nasty things, I'm sure, about the media in Scotland. But actually, it just... It, People should maybe take away from that that if you have experienced, really good journalists with a fantastic track record of breaking exclusives and they tell you something, 
it's probably true. And just because a political party comes out that you may share an allegiance with, you should maybe question that as well. Um, so I would maybe take that away from it as well. Well said, Derek. Well said. We're talking about the, the sort of behind-the-scenes stuff there, um, but like I alluded to earlier, we did speak to all three of the candidates as well while they were out and about on the road. Everyone has seen the, the TV debates, uh, whether you want to or not, I'm sure. Uh, there's been screeds and screeds written about whatever that they're doing and everything that they're saying. Uh, we decided that we would get them individually and have them sat down rather than cross-examining each other um, for, for a series in our podcast, which we put out just a few days before we're recording this. Uh, I would encourage everyone to go and listen to it if you have any uh, desire to hear a little bit more about what motivates these candidates, what makes them tick, what they would do their first 100 days in a, in a government that they would run, uh, where they might fit in with the other candidates, and, and who they turn to when, it, when they're looking for advice themselves. It's, um, there's quite a lot of insight. Justin Bowie, you spoke to... Ash Regan, who I think, it, well, she's definitely being portrayed as the almost the also ran. She's the third candidate who no one's tipping for a win. But is that fair? Is there is there more to her campaign than meets the eye? Well, it was interesting when I spoke to Ash Regan. I, I did ask her this. You know, I was like, is it a fair characterisation that you are seen as the outside candidate as the unlikely one to win? She did admit she is more of a mountain to climb in terms of name recognition. You know, Hamza Yousaf and Kate Forbes has very, very much been at the top of government. Ash Regan was in a more junior ministerial role. She perhaps came to more prominence when she resigned over the gender reforms last year. But yeah, she did admit, you know, it's definitely her biggest showing in the national stage by far. She is the lesser known candidate. The membership polling we have seen, although limited in what we've seen so far, does show her as the sort of third candidate. It very much seems like a two-horse race between Kate Forbes and Hamza Yousaf. What is interesting, however, is that the way the voting system works voters will get a second preference as well. So if you like Hamza Yousaf as your first candidate, you can also put a second preference um, after him. And if Ash Regan, say, goes out in the first round of voting, if some of her supporters decide to back someone as a second candidate, she could almost become a bit of a sort of, you know, kingmaker or queenmaker in, in, in this case. So is she going to win the race? Probably not. But I suppose she, from her perspective, she's, she's tried... Certainly got herself out there. People know who she is if they didn't before. Mm. Um, she's still confident that she can make a mark in the campaign, certainly from her own perspective. And I suppose this week with the membership figures coming out, she, she was pushing for that quite strongly. She will see it as a bit of a win that, that those membership figures have now been released. So, yeah, a, a bit of an outsider candidate, but she is very much taking it seriously from her perspective. She doesn't. She's certainly not downbeat about her chances, even if mm. those chances are very, very slim. So what, what did you learn more about her that we didn't know before? Uh, was she talking a bit more about her motivation, things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite interesting when you look at, say, Hamza Yousaf and Kate Forbes. They're obviously a bit younger. They very much come into politics almost kind of at a very early age. You know, they were both MSPs in their 20s. Ash Regan is, is a bit different to that. She did study politics, um, but she got more involved in the independence referendum became a party member then and became an MSP after that. And, and I think what you get beyond it all is she is just very, very laser focused on the issue of independence. Obviously, everyone within the SNP is. That is the overriding goal. But she is very much portraying herself as the bold candidate who is almost saying, almost a little bit, forget all this noise around us. Independence has to be the focus. She's also taken quite a strong tack on issues like you know A9 and A96 dueling, which will be of interest to listeners. Um, across you know courier country and P&J country. Um, she's also talked about the need to sort of 
de-accelerate the shift away from oil and gas. So perhaps trying to tap into some discontent which may exist in the north and northeast of Scotland among some SNP members who feel like they've been left behind a little mm. bit. So, so yeah, there's a mix there of this very strongly as a focus on independence above all else, but at the same time trying to hone in on some more local issues which you know the SNP haven't covered themselves in glory over. I did ask as well, you know, is there some opportunism to this? Because she was part of the government until recently. She, as you'd expect to do as a minister, voted with the government until she resigned over gender reforms. So when it suited her, she has, you know, backed the government on a lot of things. But she's kind of insisting that she had a lot of concerns for a long time. These concerns were brewing. And I suppose the kind of concerns over gender reforms were a bit of a tipping point for her in that regard. Yeah, and Derek, you had a, a chat with Hamza Youssef. He's clearly the, the party machine's choice, I would say, and he's, he's doing pretty well at covering the bases while being a health secretary in charge of a struggling NHS. Uh, he's got a lot on his plate. What, what stood out for you? Yeah, I thought it was quite an interesting conversation with him. Um, I was quite keen, so I, I think we've heard a lot of debates and, and, and interviews where um, all of the candidates have been have been pressed on their policies and some of their failures and things like that. We spoke a little bit about some of that as well, some of the criticism that Hamza Yousaf has had over his time, particularly as Health Secretary. But I mean, the, the allegation from Kate Forbes is that he's failed in every government position. Uh, I put yeah, that to him as brutal. well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I was quite interested in trying to dive a little bit beneath that and trying to understand what motivates him as a person and what motivates him in politics. So he spoke about how he grew up in... A fairly financially comfortable situation, um, and how that had motivated him because he was aware that other people don't have the same um, good fortune to to grow up in those kind of environments, and that and you know tackling inequality and poverty was a big thing for him. Which is actually, I think, that very night, um, the debate that evening that after we recorded that interview, um, all three candidates then talked about how their, their driving force was tackling inequality. Um, and he spoke a little bit about um, some of the sort of abuse that he's received and um, what it would mean to him to be the first um, South Asian and, and Muslim First Minister and, and what it would mean to his family, what it might mean to communities across Scotland. Um, and then also what he would do, that his first thing he would do when he comes into power, you know, when he's sitting behind that desk in Butte House, um, and he talked about he would hug his family because I think this has been... He always talked about hunkering down with his family immediately after Nicola Sturgeon resigned and, and discussing whether this was the right thing to do. First of all, because of that, some of that abuse that he receives and having a bigger public profile, um, but also just because of the workload that comes with it. Um, I thought it was really interesting to hear a number of candidates, including a number of male candidates, talking about making decisions of you know whether it's right for their family and whether their family situation means that they should they should do this. Like Angus Robertson, for example former Westminster leader, he said it was his family situation that played a big role in deciding not to run. And it sounds like Hamza Yousaf had a similar kind of um, consideration to make. And he described himself as a hands-on dad. Um, he didn't want to miss his children growing up. So they had to weigh all that up and, you know, can you, can you set boundaries in a job like that um, as First Minister? Can you set boundaries where you can also have a family life? Um, so I thought it was quite interesting. I think that's probably something... Um, that needs to be looked at more widely as well because it's uh, it's an issue. I mean, if you have top political talents deciding they're not going to they're not going to run for top jobs because of that, then maybe the job needs to change. But yeah, that's what I, I, those are the big things I took away. Well, it, it, we'll, we'll return to that subject shortly. Actually, the childcare element of the mm -hmm. whole thing. 
um, when we turn to events elsewhere in the budget. But uh, before we get there, just to round off the, the trio, I spoke to Kate Forbes um, for, for my interview. Um, she was quite personal as well. Her reflections on faith and politics. Everyone would have, you know, anyone who's paying attention to this contest will have been as shocked as everyone else at how the first week unfolded. She was tipped for the top and then started answering uh, answering very honestly questions about her her uh, background in faith and her Christianity and how that might then influence her policies. She was stunned by the backlash. She tells me about that and how that might be squared with the policy decisions. She also hasn't spoken to Nicola Sturgeon since the campaign started. I mean, that was certainly true at the time of me speaking to her a few days ago. Um, it's interesting, obviously, given that Nicola Sturgeon is still the First Minister and Kate Forbes is still the Finance Secretary in waiting behind the scenes. I mean, John Swinney's been stepping in in the, in the moment, but it's, it's still quite something that these people aren't talking to each other at the moment. It's almost like a bit rudderless, you know? She also opens up a little bit about her own family, and she said uh, she's managed to convince most of her current family on independence, which I thought was <laughs> a really uh, strange turn of phrase. It's like, well, my current family, they, they, they're all with me. So what's she saying there? What does she mean? Anyway, you can hear you can hear all of that and a lot more in all these episodes which are available on our podcast episode list, wherever you get your podcasts. I mentioned finance uh, there, which is probably a good point to pivot seamlessly to um, Jeremy Hunt and his budget. Are we enthused by it? I think Rachel Amory has been studying the fine print and um, can maybe help us to get to grips with the headlines on this one. Is there anything that we need to be looking out for here, Rachel? Uh, well, you were mentioning childcare there. That's probably the sort of the big sort of news story out of it. I think for us in Scotland, um, it looks like Holyrood's going to be getting an extra three hundred and twenty million from this spring budget. Um, so yeah, talking about childcare there um, in England now, um, parents are going to be offered thirty hours of free childcare for every child over the age of nine months. Now this isn't going to come in until September twenty twenty five. It's still quite a way off. But this is something that um, is now being talked about in Scotland because I'm sure working parents listening to this will be aware that uh, three and four year olds in Scotland do get free childcare or some amount of free childcare anyway, um, and some eligible two year olds as well. Um, one thing I thought was quite interesting was one of the Conservatives in, in, in Scotland, I think it was Megan Gallagher, who herself has just had a baby recently. Um, she brought this up at First Minister's Questions yesterday and said, well, is the Scottish government going to do this? What, are they going to bring it down to nine months? Um, and Nicola Sturgeon's response was, well, she wasn't very happy at all, very much pointing out, look, we've done a lot here when it comes to childcare. Um, our childcare provision is much better in Scotland than it is in England right now. So um, did not take too happily to being questioned about how the state of childcare in Scotland compared to England there. Um, other things as well that came up as well. I mean, there was um, a lot of talk about nuclear energy as well. Um, I think that was a former vision of uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson at the time as well. And I think lots of changes to pension too, which came under a lot of criticism. So there's been a lot of criticism about the, the pensions reforms that he has introduced. So he's going to remove the limit that people can save into their pension pot without paying tax and also increase the limit on how much money someone can build up in their pension in a tax year. Um, and a lot of the criticism there is that it's just going to help the rich. Uh, Keir Starmer is saying it was a permanent tax cut for the richest 1% because some pensioners might be saving £27,000 a year in tax, which is a lot of money, of course. 
Uh, and some pension companies as well saying it doesn't benefit those who are trying to save who are younger or those on low and middle incomes. It's just helping those who have paid over a million pound into their pension, mm -hmm. which, as I'm sure you can imagine, is not very many people in the UK. Very few people have over a million pound in their pensions. Um, but if you want to get a bit of a bit of a more of a deep, deep dive into what what happened at the spring budget, our colleague Callum Ross, he's been taking a look at that on has the key uh, highlights on both the Courier and the Press and Journal websites, and it's a good read for anyone who's wanting to find out more there. Yeah, there was a couple of things there. I mean, the the sort of dare I say sleight of hand. It's another kind of taxes are getting a little easier for the people who are at the more comfortable end of the spectrum. But there was a strange mix as well, I thought, of that sort of traditional conservative-style budget with a lot of rule Britannia Brexit-y stuff going along in the background as well. A little bit of red meat for the, for the slightly more excitable. I mean, time was everyone just wanted to know if beer, tobacco and fuel were going up. Derek, you were looking at that as well. And the polling around it in, in, um, earlier in the week about attitudes towards conservatives, were you were you waving the union jack and getting excited about a Brexit beer bonus? Mm, um, you called it red meat. I think you may, could possibly call it nonsense, um, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, there was some interest in the stuff. So you, you talked about the polling. So before this came out, just at the beginning of the week, we had an exclusive, um, which was that a third of Scots would be less likely to back the Conservatives at the next general election if they raise the duty on, on Scotch whiskey. Um, that's exactly what they did in the end. Um, yeah, so I think the Scotch Whiskey Association suggests that 75% of a bottle of whiskey would now go straight to the Treasury, which is obviously not brilliant if you work in the, if you work in the whiskey industry in Scotland. Um, they also argue that uh, this uh, disproportionately affects people in Scotland because a huge percentage, I think it's about 90% or something, um, of the spirits that are exported out of the UK begin their life in Scotland. So um, it's really bad news potentially for, for people living here. Um, but yeah, I think maybe what you're touching on with the red, white and blue analogy uh, was the Brexit pubs guarantee, um, or so-called Brexit pubs guarantee. Um, so the idea here is this is going to reduce the tax paid on drafts, draft beer and cider and pubs. Um, so it'd be about 11 pence lower than the stuff that's being sold in supermarkets, which you may think is great news for pubs. So people were kind of confused by this this idea of a Brexit pubs guarantee. What does that mean? Why is it a Brexit pubs guarantee? So yeah, the, 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 the Chancellor's claim was that this couldn't be done uh, whilst the UK was still in the EU. But when you actually look into the sort of small print and the detail in this, um, it's not quite as impressive as it might sound to begin with. So duty is actually going up. And it's going up by around 10%, which is basically the rate of inflation. And it's a huge amount. So in other words, you're going to increase the price of your pint by 10% and then take 11 pence off of it. But if you know, if you spend much time in pubs, um, you'll be aware <laughs> of that 10% is probably more than 11 pence. So the price is still going to go up. So it will be slightly lower in pubs. But yeah, so the Chancellor is probably correct to say that this wouldn't be what would have happened if... Um, the UK was still in the EU. A very cynical person might suggest that um, maybe it would be even cheaper than, than what's been put here. So actually, it's not so much of a great Brexit guarantee. Mm. But yeah, that's that's the kind of stuff behind the claim. All these things always leave me feeling a bit cold, because anyway, I, I was walking past 
uh, shops and pubs on the way to Parliament just on the day of the budget, and I looked through a window at one particular pub, you know, like like like, like a do, of, of a lot <laughs> staring inside. Are you okay, uh, Andy? Uh, <laughs> all right. Time for an intervention. Uh, a, a new a new bar, and I noticed that the pub the, the pints were nearly seven quid a pint. So there you go. Thanks. So this is not going to really touch the sides, is it? Right. Anyway, swiftly moving on from uh, that little window into my sad little world. There, um, we keep mentioning Hamza Yousaf, and we keep uh, returning to this guy wherever we whatever we were talking about. And I'm I'm thinking of him again because we've also been looking at the reaction to some more of the the stuff on the road. Now, yesterday, there was um, a whole bunch of photo calls as well. And Hamza Yousaf was was doing a, a photo call with some women from Ukraine. Rachel, can you sort of talk us through a little bit of what happened here? Because I think it's worth mentioning. Yes, I think we, we have some of the audio clip there. This was in Edinburgh. And he'd gone to visit some Ukrainian refugees to hear hear about what they were doing and what they wanted from the next first minister. Um, and... While he was in front of the cameras with um, these women, he sort of asked, where are all the men? And you can see on their faces, they're they're thinking, my goodness, does he not realise that the men are not here because they are still in Ukraine fighting in the war? Um, it was quite toe-curlingly embarrassing. Um, I think we have the clip where we can listen to it. So one, one, one question I have is, uh, where are all the men? <laughs> yes, I think that's going to come oh. back to haunt him perhaps at some point. Oh, well, just did. Um, yeah, that that was oh man, uh, I can feel I can feel the earth opening up from all the way over here. To be honest, um, I mean that's a fairly awful little moment. But there's these gaffes that they happen on the campaign trail, and I'm sure that he he wished that he'd never opened his mouth at that point. But we're we're raising this point because there's a serious issue attached to this as well. I mean, this morning we put up a story which you wrote, Rachel, um, about. A family of Ukrainian refugees who came to live with a family in Aberdeenshire, and you'll see there's a common denominator in this story as you as you explain it. I think Rachel, tell us a little <laughs> bit about it. Uh, yeah, this is this is much more of a serious story than the gas on the on the campaign trail. Um, this family, I said, living in Aberdeenshire, have been here for a few months now. I think it was September that they came to live in Scotland after fleeing Kiev. Um, and the the little girl in the family, she's seven years old, and um, started to get a lot of pain in her teeth. Um, her mouth swelled up, and she went to to the doctors and the dentists to see if she could get um, to get it sorted. Um, however, she was told to be four month wait, and she was given antibiotics and painkillers instead to get her through those four months. And her mum, um, eventually, after just seeing her crying so much and seeing her in so much pain, thought, right, this is it. Enough is enough. We can't sit around waiting four months for NHS treatment. We're going to have to go back to our old dentists in Kiev. And so earlier this month, they flew out to Poland, had a 15-hour bus journey from Poland to Kiev uh, to get this treatment done there instead. That, to them, was a better option than waiting for the NHS um, here in Scotland. And I think one of the things is that I thought was really quite bad as well was while they were in Kiev, um, uh, there was a, some bombs did go off. And the mum was saying that that brought back a lot of memories of them having to flee in the first place back in February 2022. Um, so, yeah, really not good stuff at all. And it does sort of come back down to, well, what's gone wrong here? Um, and some of the politicians that we've been speaking to have said this is completely at the door of Health Secretary Hamza Yusuf. It's it's him to blame for these long waiting lists. It's his management of the NHS. It means that Ukrainian refugees are 
considering going back to a war zone rather than waiting on a list. So yeah, a lot of a serious mm. point while while this is happening too. Yeah, yeah, it's a bad look that for for sure. Um, Hamza Yusuf again is in Aberdeen as we speak, telling us more that uh, about energy and his plan for for jobs in the future. Uh, we're yet to see the the details of that, but anyone listening to this, well, by the time that you are listening to this, we will have seen all the details, and you can of course read everything about it on our website at the PNJ in particular. Justin, you you've been looking a little bit about the employment prospects as we move into a post-fossil fuel world. Keir Starmer, the UK Labour leader, he was up and about in Scotland the other day. What did you speak to him about? Yes, well, I was speaking to Keir Starmer about investment zones. So for a bit of background for those who are just completely unaware of what they are, um, obviously recently we had the announcement that there was going to be, or we've known for a while there was going to be two green freeports in Scotland, but the bid by Aberdeen and Peterhead missed out at the expense of the bid for the Highlands and a bid for the Firth of Forth. So there was a lot of anger in the northeast over that. Obviously, at a time when the oil and gas industry is on the way out and there's a move towards renewables, I suppose the businesses in Aberdeen and in the surrounding areas just want any certainty and any incentives they can get. Investment zones were sort of floated as an alternative to freeports. So a kind of similar idea of a special low-tax economic zone that can create jobs, bring in businesses by essentially giving them tax reliefs. It was floated largely by Liz Truss when she became Prime Minister. Sort of hinted after she left, though, that they might be put in the back burner. But now they've kind of been revived again, maybe not to the same scale as we would have seen under Liz Truss, but there's going to be 12 across the UK and at least one in Scotland. So immediately businesses in the North East and Aberdeen are obviously very keen to uh, see their area as a possible host for one of these. They want to see one created. When I was speaking to Keir Starmer, he kind of backed it. He said that he would support calls for one, you know, his attitude was anything that would boost investment for Scotland as a whole, but in the northeast would be a benefit at the time when, you know, the region is transitioning from fossil fuels to renewables. But he pointed out that there needs to be a lot more investment, very much talking about the idea that this should only be the start. Mm -hmm. Some political parties have perhaps been a bit wary around these ideas, you know, the Greens in particular were very critical of freeports, basically arguing that they're right wing, you know, they're basically giving businesses tax breaks. They could be the centers for money laundering and organized crimes. There's some very, very big claims there. But I suppose for Labour and the likes of the SNP, there's often that tension between wanting to be pro-business, but not wanting to see as backing everything the Conservatives do. But Starmer in principle was certainly kind of keen on the idea if it can help bring in investment and if we can get more beyond that. I suppose it's just interesting because often before we've perhaps thought the opposition are just sort of shouting into the window we bet the government make the policy but do we really care what the opposition say but things are a bit different now because with Labour resurgent in the polls suddenly there's a kind of sense of well Keir Starmer very much could be and currently is likely to be our Prime Minister within the next couple of years so if he's backing this I'm sure that the people up in Aberdeen and in wider Aberdeen are going to be very interested to see whether you know well if they have an investment zone by then is that something yeah. that we can rely on keeping yeah. And like I said, we'll have more on what you can read about that and you can read more on Hamza Youssef's plan for what a Scottish government under him would do uh, for jobs in the North East as well online. And that is it for this week. Thank you to Justin Bowie, Derek Healy, Rachel Amory and producer Morvan McIntyre. And of course, to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more. But until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. <laughs>